We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, If These Walls Could Talk, New York Yankees, the publisher, Triumph Books, the author, Jim Cott. Please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse, Jim Cott. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Jim. It's, it's really a pleasure and an honor. And uh, the, uh, the book itself, I know, is obviously about the Yankees. You're, uh, it's a terrific book about your days as a pitcher and as a broadcaster with the Yankees. But... Uh, because of what this clubhouse is all about, a love of baseball, with a capital B, we'll be glad to talk about the book and baseball in general. Sure. And uh, the uh, and I forgot to turn my phone off, so <laughs> that's a message to anybody if you forgot to turn your phones off. Uh, but what I think what I'd like to just uh, start out with a couple of little comments. Uh, sometimes you hear people say the... Uh, like Sinatra, his music was the soundtrack of my life. And he, he, his music traces somebody through time. And I thought about it, and this is my story, but this will resonate with everybody in here in their own way. Uh, you pitched your first Major League game six months before I was born. Trying to make me feel old. <laughs> I'm about to make me feel old. And you threw your final pitch in the Majors over a year after I graduated from college. So it, it feels like the, the baseball soundtrack to my life. And I really appreciate what you did. And I always enjoyed watching you. And uh, so the first thing I'd like to ask you has nothing to do with the book, but we have a little sign on, on our uh, counter over there about somebody's first baseball game. So I would just like to ask you, what, do you remember your first baseball game? Vividly, yeah. In fact, when I was, uh, uh, first of all, thanks for coming. I think one of the uh, one of the joys of uh, of writing a book, and I'm not a I'm not a big time author by any means. I cross paths with a lot of them. James Patterson down in, uh, in in Florida once in a while. I see him at golf club where I play golf down there. But uh, the last book I wrote with. Uh, Triumph Books was a publisher, still pitching, uh, which was sort of a segue from my active pitching career into begin to pitching behind the microphone. Uh, so that was a lot about my career. And I did a lot of signings all around the country, Barnes and Noble and so forth. And what was cool is I ran into uh, classmates that I had years ago that I hadn't seen in years. And, and then the fact that uh, it's kind of like going to Cooperstown on induction weekend. You really you see the real baseball fans because people are really you know they love baseball and, and they appreciate the uh, the beauty of the game the the art of the game. Uh, today we deal with a lot of science and numbers and stats and metrics, but you know real baseball is the love of the game and what you see on the field. But uh, 1946. Well, first of all, when I was with, doing games for the Madison Square Garden Network. Uh, a young lady named Deb Kaufman did our pregame shows. So we went to do a game in Detroit, 
and she said, "You saw your first game in Detroit, right?" And I said, "Yeah, my dad took there, took me there in uh, it was mid June, maybe late June of 1946. Red Sox and Tigers played a doubleheader." She said, "Do you remember where you were sitting?" And I said, "It was it was somewhere up in the upper deck above the third base." I didn't know exactly. So we walked up there with a camera, and she said, well, tell me about it. I said, well, it was a Wednesday afternoon. It was a daytime doubleheader. Uh, Ted Williams hit two. Hank Greenberg hit two. Hal Neuhauser was the pitcher. He had a home run. Uh, Boo Ferris pitched for the Red Sox. He won the second game. Bertie Tebbets was the catcher. There were 43,000-some-odd people there. Uh, the Tigers won the first game 16-3, to and the Red Sox won the second one 9-4. to so I'm spewing out all these numbers. <laughs> and Peter Hurt from the Elias Sports Bureau, uh, they provide a lot of our background information. So, you know, Peter's sitting at home watching this, and he said, yeah, all these players, they think they really remember. And I might have missed a number or two, but I can, you know, I can remember it like I think we all did when we were kids. It was the, the greenest grass and the, the uniforms were the whitest uniforms I'd ever seen. So I, that was 1946. My first memory was uh, my dad bought a little token for a nickel on the 1945 World Gambling on Baseball. A little, <laughs> a little nickel in the World Series pool last time the Cubs were in it. And I had the Tigers five runs in the first, game seven. And they did. Against Barone. Against Barone, yeah. Cavaretta was playing for the Greenberg was uh, uh, Greenberg hit too the day I, I went to the my first game too. But anyway, that was kind of my baptism of baseball. My favorite uh, piece of memorabilia uh, I have a picture of my in in the World Series years ago. I hooked up with uh, Sandy Koufax in the '65 series, and uh, they always take pictures of the starting pitchers behind the behind the cage before the game. So. Photographers there, he said, Would you like a picture of your dad? So my dad's got his corn cob pipe and his top hat, coat and tie, which everybody dressed then to go to games like that. So I have that's my favorite piece of memorabilia is uh, with my dad standing behind the uh, home plate at Metropolitan Stadium in 1965. But his hero was Lefty Grove. So I have a couple of nice authenticated pieces of Lefty Grove. He went to Lefty's induction in 1947. He even went out of his way to see Lefty's bowling alley in Lana County, Maryland. So that's <laughs> how much of a fan he was. So it gives you a little bit of my background in baseball. That's great. Well, you just met, we had a couple weeks ago at Seoul, we had a, an original Lefty Grove signed contract giving his right for an Ethan Allen baseball board game. Ah. Uh, but actually, speaking of the 1965 World Series with Sandy Koufax, since you brought it up, you matched up against him. Right. What, what was that like? What, what, what was it that was uh, intimidating. A uh, couple, you know, one funny story associated with that. Well, first of all, I never, you know, I never saw Sandy Koufax pitch in person because in those ga- in those days, you had Diz and Pee Wee doing the games on the weekend, but we were all playing on the weekend, so I never saw him. Now. I heard about him, obviously. Now, you know, we're down there and our bullpens are, you know, I'm probably about as far apart from him, maybe not even as far as your far wall there, warming up to start the game. And it's, uh, he didn't pitch game one because it was Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. So Drysdale pitched game one. Here's kind of a cute story about that. We hammered Drysdale. We knocked him out. Alston comes out to get the ball. 
Drysdale hands him the ball and says, bet you wish I was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I drew uh, I drew Sandy, so you know we go. We had a much better hitting team than they did. They they end up winning the series mainly because of him. But uh, his job was tougher than mine. But we went through the batting order the first time. You know, one two three, one two three. And I'm sitting next to Johnny Sane, our pitching coach. And I said, John, if I give up a run, this game's over. I said, there's not a man alive can hit this guy. And you know that's how impressive he was at that time. And we did. Uh, we squeaked out a run. I think uh, somebody made an error. We got two runs. They actually took him out uh, for a pinch hitter, and Drysdale was a pinch hitter. He pinch hit off in the top and seventh. And uh, another cute story about that is we're we're leading three to one going to the bottom of the eighth, and Ron Paranowski is their relief pitcher. Well, a couple years down the road, Ronnie and I uh, were teammates in Minnesota. We played a lot of golf together. Well, uh, there's men on first and second with two out. And we're leading three to one, and I'm in the on deck circle. Frank Quillacy is a hitter, so Paranowski balked on purpose to let the runners go to second and third. Now first base is open, so he can walk Quillacy to get to me. I hit a line drive up the middle and knock. <laughs> so we won five to one, and uh, I never let him forget that. Yeah, but then uh, Sandy shut us out in game five, and the, you know they made a, a big deal out of uh, Madison Bumgarner what he did in the World Series, and rightly so. It was, it was very impressive, uh, you know, for what they handle, the way they handle pitchers today. Well, Sandy shut us out in game five. Two days later, he shut us out a complete game shutout in game seven and never threw a curveball after the fourth inning. You know, he couldn't throw. So uh, he was, when anybody asked me who's, you know, the greatest pitcher uh, in my baseball lifetime, uh, you know, I mentioned Sandy because pitch nine innings, pitch for a team that didn't score a lot of runs for him. And, uh, you know, one year he struck out 300 more than he walked. Struck out like 385, walked 81. So uh, I got a, a nice up-close view of how great he was. <laughs> well, if he was the best pitcher that uh, that you ever saw, who was the best ball play, other non-pitcher ball player? Well, I, you know, I didn't play... Uh, I didn't play in the National League much. I faced Willie in the uh, All-Star game in 66, Willie Mays. Uh, I grew up, being a Midwestern boy, uh, I was a Hank Aaron fan. And Hank Aaron did, in my opinion, the ordinary things in an extraordinary fashion. It wasn't flashy. I think if it was a big deal to steal 40 bases, he could have done it. Uh, but that being said, I think what Willie... Uh, brought to the game, and I always bounce these things off Don Zimmer. It was such a privilege for me to cover the Yankees when Zim was there, because we go back to the early '60s when we played uh, softball and basketball in the off season together. And so I'd always bounce those. I said, so he said, "Yeah," I said Aaron was great, but, but Willie brought that boyish enthusiasm and that flash and spark uh, to the game that um, that nobody else did. So. Uh, uh, you know, he would be up there. As far as guys that I actually played against, uh, I, I think I'd put Mickey there, and then the guy that was toughest on me would be Al Kaline from the Tigers. And, uh, but, uh, you know, in those days, Mickey was, for a period of time, uh, was certainly the best all-around player. Uh, one player doesn't get enough credit when you mention Mays and Mantle and Aaron. Uh 
and I faced him some in the 60s and then as a DH later in his career, and that's Frank Robinson. Yeah. He's right there with him. Yeah. Another guy that uh, we're going to eventually get to the Yankees, but just a couple of other questions. As you can tell, I'm not a Yankee fan. <laughs> Uh, another ball player who, who would certainly be up there in, in many ways, you turned out to be his pitching coach, uh, Pete Rose. Yes. Uh, what was that experience like uh, being the pitching coach for Pete Rose's ball club? Well, it, it was uh, it was something I, n- I never really had a great desire to be a, to be a coach. Uh, you know, I didn't know exactly what I was fortunate. I played till I was 45, so you know, fortunately, if my career ended when I was 30, I probably would have gone to the minor leagues and been a coach or stayed in baseball somehow. And then this thing uh, legalized robbery called announcing baseball games. <laughs> I got a chance to do that. But when I was pitching for the Phillies, and Pete was with the Reds. Uh, and then later with the Cardinals uh, as well, and he was with the Phillies then, uh, he'd hit right-handed off me, obviously. And when he made an out, he would always circle and try to run over the mound. And uh, I would I would kind of catch him out of the corner of my eye, and I would move in his way, so he had to go around me. And he'd kind of look back at me with that, that grin of his. And uh, this went on for several games that I faced him. And they had a batting practice pitcher named Henry King that I knew. And Henry came over to me one day and said, Pete told me to tell you if he ever gets a managing job, he wants you to be his pitching coach. So I was actually in a car on the way to watch the races at Saratoga in uh, August of 84. My baseball career was over. I was doing a few games for ESPN. And I hear over the radio, Pete Rose, this name player manager of the Cincinnati Reds. So I said to my buddy, the horse trainer, I said, I'm going to get a call tomorrow. I said, oh, he tells tons of guys that. Well, <laughs> I did get a call, and I told him ahead of it. I said, Pete, I have a lot of, uh, quote, different ideas that I learned from Eddie Lopat and Johnny Singh. So I don't want to come in and be your coach if my ideas might be a conflict. You know, typical Pete said, I don't know anything about pitching. You come in and you, you handle the pitchers, you do anything you want. So that was that was a great experience. It was one of my, along with Bruce Souter, striking out Gorman Thomas to uh, in Game 7 of the 82 World Series and get me a World Series ring. Seeing Pete get the hit to break Cobb's record was one of the top thrills I had in baseball. So I really enjoyed that. And, of course, the, the dark side of it was that uh, Pete loved to gamble. Gambled on football. He gambled on horses, on dogs, and everything. I, I didn't have an inkling until the story came out that he actually uh, began to bet on baseball as well. But it, uh, I mentioned his name today uh, on the MLB Network because we're, you know, we're so inundated with metrics, and it, it's like those of us that really know what goes on between the fields, between the lines. And experience for years. I talked with Timmy McCarver about this, you know, and he starts screaming, pitch counts, innings restrictions. I mean, <laughs> these people have never played, you know, and I said, and I said, yeah, we don't get a voice really more so than the guys that promote the metrics. Well, I always use Pete as an example. I mean, now we have StatCast, which is, is a very entertaining tool and it may get better and better as it goes along, but it, it tracks what they call the exit velocity 
off the bat. It's kind of like, I know all about that technology because I'm an avid golfer, and it, <laughs> it measures, I don't want to sound that smart because I'm not, but it's the coefficient of restitution, you know, the way the <laughs> trampolines off the bat. Well, I said, what do you think Pete Rose's exit velocity was? I mean, he wouldn't even get signed today. He couldn't run. He had no power. Didn't have a strong arm. Had no range. So what's the scout going to do? I said, I got this kid from Cincinnati. Can't run, has no power, can't throw, <laughs> has no range. But I'd like to sign him. Well, he ends up being one of the greatest hitters, you know, greatest baseball players, yeah. great base runner. And so he defies all those all those metrics. So it was uh, it was a unique unique experience. There'll never be uh, anybody like him. It's the, sh- the shame is that he couldn't be put being inducted into the Hall of Fame aside because that's his own fault. But it would be nice if uh, if he could be reinstated to be useful in baseball because he could be he could help so many young players. I mean, he, you know, with the baseball IQ and, and game awareness and things like that. Well, we had uh, Bill Giles was here uh, for an event and sure. sitting in that seat, and he said his dad Warren Giles sure. said would always mention that Pete Rose was the greatest ball player he ever saw. Yeah. Uh, that was his opinion. Well, when you when you look at the skill level, I mean, he wasn't skilled like a Ken Griffey Jr. or maybe like a Mike Trout, but as far as getting, like what I say about players today, they're bigger, stronger, faster, they can do, they can do things, pitchers can do things with the ball that I couldn't do when I was 21, but they lack play into the scoreboard, game awareness, some of the subtle skills that uh, a guy like Pete Rose had, you know, baseball IQ, if you'd want to call it. Uh, and, and if they could combine that with uh, with the talent, then we'd have a lot more Mike Trouts and Clayton Kershaws. <laughs> that, so that, that actually brought up, brings up something uh, from your book. So now we're going to shift over a little bit to the, to the Yankees. There's something that it was kind of a little two-sentence uh, item in the, in this book, but I, I thought it was fascinating, so I'd like you to talk about it a, a, a little bit. In the book, and we don't need to go through the book in detail because you're all going to read the book, but in the book, uh, Jim picks his all-time Yankee roster, but only from the time from his time, so not Babe Ruth, not Garrick, uh, but from his time on, which covers a few years. Uh, so for second base... His all-time Yankee was Bobby Richardson. And then he picked three, basically, but his top guy was Bobby Richardson. Then he, he said, I'd go with Willie Randolph as the primary backup because of his smarts and his durability. And then I'd go with Robinson Cano. I know you're saying Cano has way better numbers than the other two. He's a superstar. I'll agree. He is talented beyond the other two, but he's also not as durable. And for all the numbers he puts up, Robbie is not as good at doing the little things that win ball games, like Willie and Bobby. I thought that was fascinating. If you would just talk a little bit about the little things that... Well, I I think, for example, and you mentioned you're going to have Billy's author here. Right. uh, And and I've been around the world in Kentucky twice with Billy. (laughs) We were teammates, actually. He had a home run to break a, we had a 12-game losing streak in 61 when I was with the Twins, and we made a trade for Billy in his first 
night there in Baltimore, in Old Memorial Stadium. He hits a two-run homer in the eighth inning, and we end up winning three to one. Uh, I pitched the game, and so I got my picture taken. I remember calling my dad. I got my picture. I got my picture taken with Billy Martin. He's a teammate of mine, you know, <laughs> because he was not that far removed from being, you know, kind of a Yankee World Series hero. Uh, and then he was a coach for us, and then he managed me in '69, and then. When I got uh, sold to the Yankees in 79, he was uh, manager then as well. So, uh, but Billy, what Billy instilled in uh, like a guy like Rod Carew or somebody had a big influence on when, you know, when there was a, a man on second in a tight game and there was a base hit going between first and second, even though the second baseman knew he couldn't make the play, he was going to dive and knock the ball down keep the ball in the infield, keep the run from scoring. And, you know, Robbie played the game, it came so easy for him that those are the kind of little things that I, I didn't see him do. Now, Pedroia uh, does it, but I, I didn't see him do those kind of little things like a, a Willie would do. And, again, that's I think that's because players today, they have a lot more talent, a lot more ability. The game, I think, kind of comes easy for them. And as a result, they were never forced to, to do. But those are the things that Billy brought to the table as a as a manager. You know, uh, knock the ball down when the runner's on second base. Man on second base, no out. He'd give you uh, he'd give you one swing, and if you didn't hit the ball the other way, then you're you know if you're lefty, you're going to bunt it. If you're righty, you're going to push it, advance the runner. So those are the little fundamental things that the best team. And covering the Yankees that I saw doing that was the 98 team. And, and more than just 98, I saw Paul O'Neill last night. And uh, I said, man, you guys had some baseball players. You know, you had Bernie, uh, even though Giambi was an MVP, A-Rod was an MVP, and I respect that. But uh, my first baseman, third baseman during my announcing time would have been Tino Martinez and Scott Brocious because they could do all the – quote, little things, you know. Right. They could hit the ball the other way. They were good two-strike hitters. So those, those are the little things I'm talking about. Yeah. That's, that's great. Uh, now, as a broadcaster, uh, and for those of you who may not know, Jim won seven Emmy Awards as a broadcaster with the New York Yankees. And the first Emmy Award you won was somebody else who has been in the clubhouse, was uh, Dwight Gooden's yeah. no-hitter. Right. Uh, what what was that like as a broadcaster to, to for everything he had been through and yeah that that was my that was my first experience at uh, at being behind the mic for a no hitter like that and uh, I saw Bob Raceman the TV the radio critic at uh, I did a piece on uh, SNY prior to a Mets game and 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 he was a little critical af uh, of me after that rightly so because. I treated it like I was a player. I, we didn't say anything about Doc having a no-hitter, which the David Wells game we did. But the most impressive thing about Doc Gooden's no-hitter was the catch that Gerald Williams made in the very first inning. And the guy that hit the ball was Alex Rodriguez for the Mariners. Yeah. And Gerald Williams, we used to we used to kid about it with Zim because Bernie was a terrific center fielder, but Bernie was actually the third best center fielder on the Yankees. It was Gerald Williams, Ricky Lede, and then Bernie. You know, Ricky didn't get a chance to he was but Gerald was a great, you know, great athlete, great, and he's the one that made that catch. Uh, or there wouldn't have been any no hitter. But uh, yeah, those are always fun for uh, 
software announcers, and then you know, Boomer's perfect game was one we could we could kind of see that coming. Uh, Twins had Paul Molitor in the lineup, but other than that, they didn't have a lot of experienced uh, hitters. And so we we began to you know just talk about that from I think the third inning on. And what was it like as a broadcaster with uh, Phil Rizzuto and Bill White uh, in that era? Well, I think I have that in my in the book. But, of course, Bill was, uh, and that's one of the reasons that I've probably bumped heads once in a while with, uh, you know, the differences in the Yes Network and MSG were quite a bit different because Mike McCarthy, in fact, I met his son Jeremy today who works for the MLB Network, which I now do some broadcasting with uh, Bob Costas, and um, his dad, Mike McCarthy, was, uh, was I guess you'd call the executive producer. He's a guy I worked for, and they never they never got involved in, uh, in telling us what to say. So when I got the Yankee job in 86, uh, you remember Frank Messer, I think, uh, George let Frank go, and uh, I had done some in years past, if there was a rain delay, they didn't have alternate programming. They would call a player up to the booth and just visit. Well, Don Carney, who was the producer then for WPIX, had heard me do a lot of those rain. And and he had, in passing, I think, one time, said, you ought to get in this business when you, you get it. So now they're looking for a broadcaster. I end up getting the job. So Bill White was my mentor, you know, and he told me right away, he said, look, they're going to try to put words in your mouth. George will want you to say things about umpires. He said, tear them up, throw them away, don't sacrifice your credibility. You're only going to last one year anyway because you're not a real Yankee. <laughs> he, was right, he was right about that. I don't know, Levitt Pope from Picks wanted to sign me, and he said, I can't get George's approval. So so Bill, uh, Bill really was uh, taught me you know, who to trust, who not to trust, and, and the attitude that I ought to have. Well, Scooter, uh, one night in Cleveland, cold, they called the stadium there the mistake by the lake, and it was bitter cold, the wind was blowing, <laughs> and we had a three-man rotation. So let's say Bill and I would do the first three innings. Then Scooter and Bill would do the second three. Well, then Bill's night's over. Now Scooter and I do the last three calls everybody by their last name. So seventh inning is coming. He said, uh, Cot, I'll be right back. You got to go to the men's room. So I've never done play-by-play. So I'm, you know, I'm sitting there with my headset on, and the inning starts, and I'm looking, you know, where's Zudo? So I said, well, here's Joe Carter or whoever, ball one. I start, I just... And then the Carney in my ear said, where's Rizzuto? I said, he just went to the restroom. He'll be... SOB is not coming back. Not coming back. <laughs> Scooter, it was cold, so you know, Scooter just left and went to the hotel. <laughs> Which a lot of you know from watching you. They used to talk about him going over the over the bridge. Right. Yeah. But uh, that was a good learning experience for me, working uh, with Bill, who taught me a lot about what to do, and then Scooter, who you always had to be on guard because you never knew what he was going to do. <laughs> And there's a lot of great stories in this book, uh, which we won't even get into uh, Steinbrenner, because there's a, a ton in this book about Steinbrenner. You were very uh, upfront and honest in, from all angles. Uh, so for all of those, you'll enjoy reading all of that. Well, I'll just tell you uh, uh, the thing, the, the, uh, 
the thing that was sort of rewarding to me with George it goes back to <clears throat> when I was a player with the Yankees, uh, 79 and 80. At the end of 79, I said to Billy, uh, what do you think about next year? You know, I was 41 years old, and he said, well, I want you back lefty-lefty in the bullpen. So I went to see George. Uh, you know, I didn't have an agent because at that stage of my career, my goal was don't price yourself out of the market. I just, you know, I, I wanted to keep playing. And I'd have played for the minimum. I don't care. So, uh, so I went up to see George, and he said, yeah, but Billy told me we want you back. He said, I have to take you off the roster, off the 40-man roster, to protect one of our young players. And then in December, when the waiver period is, I'll put you back on the roster. Well, I had never had any dealings with George, so uh, I made the mistake of trusting him. <laughs> and now come December, I get a letter from Stick Michael said, we're inviting you to spring training as a non-rostered player. So I call Stick. So what's this about? I said, George and I had a contract talk. I mean, I'm supposed to have a contract for next year. George didn't say anything to me about it. So now I call Tampa, and uh, I think it was, I want to say her name was Jeannie. He was a longtime uh, receptionist secretary, and she said, well, I'll put you on a call list. I said, well, i got nowhere to go. I'll just hold. <laughs> I sit here all day. If it was for George got on the phone, yeah, what can I do for you? I said, well, we had this conversation. He said, I don't remember. <laughs> I said, George, I've been playing this game a long time. I mean, I, I said, I, I remember vividly at that time there was a free agent pool I could have gone into in like 10 or 11 teams where they had a shot at me. So he kind of had me backed to, into a corner. I did end up going to spring training as a non-rostered player. To kind of show his guilt is he gave me an added bonus to just to go to spring training. And then uh, I made the roster. Uh, but they put him then uh, as the years pass by they put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated you remember that in his Napoleon outfit yeah. Yeah. and I wrote a scathing editorial to how can you put a convicted felon on your cover when you've got Kirby Puckett and Ken Griffey Jr. and all these great players so now when Pick says well we want to hire you but we have to get George's approval <laughs> <laughs> that could be a little tough no problem no problem. No problem. Yeah. But I only lasted a year because, uh, like Bill said, I, I didn't fit the mold of of taking these pieces of paper and saying things about the umpires that I knew weren't true. Well, then when Tony retired in 95, in 94, actually, he recommended me for the job, Tony Kubak, which was nice of him. And that's when I signed with MSG. And then MSG was fine. There was never any conflicts. But with yes... They were always paranoid about what George would think. If I said something over the air, and I think it's in the book one one night, this young Baltimore pitcher was going to get his first win, Rick Bauer. So I said to our director, get a shot of uh, Rick Bauer on the bench. You know, he's fighting his friend. I said, I know what that's like, because my first win was in the stadium in 1960 against Whitey Ford. And all of a sudden, there's a... Uh, voice in the back of the booth. Hey, George is in Tampa. He thinks this is an Oriole telecast. You know, meaning that I'm talking too much about the Orioles. So I said, you got George's cell phone. Oh, we'll handle it. Well, then about two weeks go by, I see George on the elevator. And I, I mean, not out of disrespect, I never called him boss or Mr. Steinbrenner. I just, he called me Jim. I called him George. I said, George, I understand you were upset about something I... He said, I'm never upset with you. He said, I appreciate the fact that you tell it like it is. So, you see, they would get 
paranoid about it. But George never, George never did, and he was nice enough when it, when he found out my late wife uh, was battling cancer. Subsequently, passed away in 2008, but I made 2006 my last year, so I retired after that year. And Debbie Timon came to me and said, "George, wants you to throw out the ceremonial first pitch?" He did a nice video on the board, so you know our relationship evolved into where you know we talk horses, and uh, I got a kick out of uh, Cashman and. And before that even stick, uh, they would say, you got to quit talking about our pitchers throwing to first base too often. I said, why? Because he said, George will call up and says, Katzas are throwing to first base too often. What, what so he would listen to what I, what I said. They wanted me to quit saying that. I was like his coach on the air. But, uh, but it, it was a unique ex- experience, and it ended up on a good note. Well, I'm going to ask you about a, uh, another pitcher, uh, when I first heard that this book was coming out, I got really excited that we may have the chance to bring you to the clubhouse. I never told this to uh, Andrea at, at Triumph, by the way. Uh, but we have a sign in the window that American Express sent us for Small Business Saturday, Shop Small Movement. It says, uh, the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse, a love letter to baseball. And I saw something you did a couple years ago on MLB Network. And it, I, I, it was very emotional to me. Uh, to me, it was a love letter. It was your open letter to Stephen Strasburg. And I, I really thought it was beautiful. And originally, I was going to figure out, try to figure out a way to even show it tonight, but mm-hmm. I'm not that technically uh, adept. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, uh, maybe set the stage a little, and your, your feelings about that. It was so, it's so, for anyone, by the way, you can just Google... Jim Cott, open letter to Stephen Strasburg, and you'll you'll find it, and you can watch it. It's it's about two three minutes. It's just beautiful. Yeah, MLB sent a crew to my to my house to do that, and I did I did Strasburg's debut. Bob Costas and I did, and I think John Smoltz worked that one with us too. And what he did that night was fantastic. I can't imagine, you know, first start, all the pressure, and, and he was, as you might understand, a little shaky in the beginning, but he he was really dominant that year. But then. I am so, I mean, I think pitch counts, innings restrictions, and radar has done more to set pitching back. I mean, you've got more injuries. I mean, I I pitched, and I don't say this to boast, I say this because I'm grateful that I was blessed with a durable arm. I pitched 305 innings when I was 36 years old. So if I can do that at 36, why couldn't these guys that are bigger and stronger do it when they're 22? So I think that's set. Well, when I heard that they were going to set, that they were going to, Shut Strasburg down. I mean, I know when we got to the World Series in 65, and we had a young team, and we got beat by Sandy, basically. And I said, we'll get a good team. We'll get back. Well, 17 years later, you know, at the just a, just a quick aside, I was watching the Orioles and the Indians in the 97 playoffs, and my friend Tim McCarver's on the air, and he said, you know, if the Orioles win, uh, Cal Ripken will go to the World Series for the first time since 83, 14 years. Who holds the all-time record for most years between World Series appearances? I scratched my head and I said, well, if that's 14, I must have the record because I went 17. So I said, I'm the answer to that question. <laughs> so 17 years later, fortunately, I finally got back. So my motivation was, if I'm in Steven Strasburg's shoes, I go to Mike Rizzo and Scott Boris and said, I want to pitch. 
I feel good right now. We got a chance. He could have led him to the World Series, and I just sort of put myself in in his shoes and said, "This is knowing what I know now. That's what I would have done." And I think, in retrospect, I think he kind of wishes he had too, because I don't know if they'll ever get back. They got a great team. He's now. I brought his name up today. You know, he's got a lot of talent, but here's a guy named Mike Leak with the Reds who was drafted the same year and. Very few, few people have heard of Mike Leake has a better record than Steven Strasburg because they can't keep Strasburg on the mound. Right. He's always got something wrong with him. So that's what motivated that uh, that letter. That I know how how uh, you know what a what a treat what a thrill it is to get to the World Series, and you can't take that for granted because you never know if the opportunity is going to come again. And I just think that. That was the time that uh, that he could have done it. He may never get a chance again. Did he ever? Uh, did he ever speak to you about it? Or no, I, and I wouldn't have expected him. I, I did a game later, and their equipment man, equipment manager, came to me and said, uh, "I saw that piece," and he said, uh, "Stephen really appreciates it." He said, uh, "We did too," but you know his hands are pretty well tied. I mean, right. it'll, these days, unfortunately, the agent kind of controls the. The pitcher, and if he bucked, you know, bumped heads with Scott Boris and went ahead and pitched 225 innings, and like this year, if you're a Met fan, I told Terry Collins this spring, I said, I don't wish you this kind of pressure, but if the Mets are in contention on the first of September to get a wild card spot, and Harvey's pitched like 180 innings, and the phone rings and it's Scott Boris, I don't want him to pitch anymore. How are you going to handle the fans and the press? They're, they're going to they're going to go crazy in New York for as long as they've been waiting for the Mets to get there. And so, but that's what happens that the uh, the agents kind of control they control the owners and the players in some cases. I think what we're going to do now, because I, I know everybody in here is, loves the game the way the guys up here love the game, uh, so I want to make sure we get a few questions in. But we're under a little bit of a clock situation. So what we're going to do is something a little different. For those of you listening to the podcast, this is going to seem strange, but we're going to wrap up the podcast. I'm then going to have Jim, you can stay seated, but I'm going to, if you don't mind, start, to, I don't want to hold you here all night, so start to sign some of the other books. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. And then they can kind of throw some other questions out at you if, if that's fine. No problem. So the only the only way I want to wrap up the podcast uh Again, the name of the book, If These Walls Could Talk, New York Yankees, published by Triumph Books, written by Jim Cott. And I'm not going to get into Hall of Fame, should Jim be in the Hall of Fame, should not, should he not, whatever. Uh, I'm just going to leave you with a fact. Uh, there's a few guys who have plaques in the Hall of Fame. If you go to Cooperstown, you'll see these plaques, some pictures. And I think uh, you're going to know some of these names. Red Ruffing... Jim Palmer, Bob Feller, Carl Hubble, Bob Gibson, Juan Marichal, Whitey Ford, Jim Bunning, Catfish Hunter. Jim Cott won more games than every one of those pitchers. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you.